Who's excited for this? You ready? Who's sad? I was a little sad a couple weeks ago when I wrote the last one. So we're our last sermon on Luke. We started on March 8th in 2020. No, we started Luke before that. No, we started Luke on the first day we launched. Yeah, yeah. This is our 84th sermon in Luke. So we've been in Luke for quite a while. Some of them was during the pandemic. So one was at our launch. Some of them were in the pandemic with me standing in the corner of my apartment uh, while Evan Newsy and the boys were screaming in the background and I had to restart it. Be quiet, I'm recording. Uh, that's like 70 something hours of Luke sermons. Um, if you watch all nine seasons of Seinfeld, it's 66 hours. So we've officially done more Luke than Seinfeld did Seinfeld. Who's excited about that? Um, all right, so let's recap real quick. Remember, we've said a bunch of different times every couple of weeks. We say the reason that we chose Luke or I chose Luke for this series as we started our church was, um, you know, hopefully as you listen to almost all 70 hours, um, you're, uh, you encounter, uh, we've encountered this God-man. That's what we're trying to do, the Savior. Who does Jesus, who is he really? Who does Jesus tell us in his word that he is? Not what's all this extra stuff that churches have added and we've added with TV shows, you know, um, uh, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus, you know, that guy, uh, like, who for some reason is always mad at everybody. Like, Jesus never smiles and stuff, you know. And we have this picture of who Jesus is, and we said we want to take all that stuff and throw it in the garbage. And then we want to look at the book of Luke and ask ourselves the question, who is um, this, Maj- this Messiah, this Jesus. And how, hopefully, this book then has impacted your life, your spiritual life. Hopefully this book has helped you grow in your intimacy with the Lord. We never want to just read the Bible so that we know all the weird historical facts, even though we get into some of that stuff, right? That's not the point, though. Right? The point is to deepen our trust and our relationship with the Lord. And, man, we really covered a lot of ground in the book of Luke. And what's one of the cool things is, you know, we're not, we're medium church calendar folks, right? We're not like super high church, but we're also not like the, um, the independent Baptist church that only does Easter and that's it, right? So we kind of, we're kind of fall in the middle. And what's cool about the church calendar though, is there's a lot of things in the church calendar that kind of tell the story of the life of Jesus. And in the church calendar, right, we have, um, you know, Advent and Christmas and all that. Um, and we talked about, you know, that's the birth of Jesus. And we read all about that in Luke at the beginning. Um, and the birth of Jesus in Luke is a really long part because it's the first two chapters, but they're both like 80 or 80-something. They're long, right? And so we read these 150, 160 verses about the infancy. And then, you know, we, we read about the rest of the stuff he does. And we get to a couple weeks ago or months ago, we did the death of Jesus. You know, and the death of Jesus gets a lot of play in the church calendar. We have Good Friday. It's a pretty big day. We do a Good Friday service. We'll probably do one this year with all the churches. Uh, Easter, right? Resurrection Sunday. That's kind of our big day, isn't it? That's like the, uh, it's like the, the biggest day of the year. You know, I think Easter is bigger for churches than Christmas. Um, you know, we celebrate, we sing the song. We, well, so we've been doing all the resurrection sermons recently, which is why we keep singing all the Easter songs. You know, it's like last week we did the other uh, resi- the Christ is Risen song. Um, anyway, so you know, Easter is a pretty big day. You got the bunnies and the eggs, the whole deal, right? Uh, 40 days after Easter, though, is what we call Ascension Sunday. And the Ascension, man, 
it's such a cool thing, but it's like the middle child of the church calendar. It gets no love, no attention, right? And so it has to be all weird if it's going to get its parents. That's how I did it. Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, it's treating the ascension, though, like uh, treating the ascension like or just kind of putting it over here is a big mistake because it's really cool. So what we're going to do today, we're going to finish Luke and we're going to talk about what does the ascension mean? What's the point of it? Why, why is it so cool? Why don't we kind of leave it over there? Um, I'm going to caveat, right? I've said this before. My job is not really to be original um, and creative uh, in my sermon prep. I mean, there's a bunch of that too, but I'm totally okay with pilfering stuff that's like really great because the point is not for me to be interesting. It's for you guys to learn great stuff, right? So, I'm caveat. My two favorite sermons of all time. Um, one was by a guy named Ed Clowney. And if you remember, during the pandemic, one of the weeks of our church service, I made you guys listen to it. One of the weeks I was on vacation or something. I was like, since we're doing pre-recorded sermons anyway, here's a sermon from 1960-whatever. Um, and that was the one member where David, um, man, I wish I could have a drink from my hometown in Bethlehem and his mighty men run and get him the drink and then he pours it on the ground. Okay, so that whole sermon is one of my favorites. My second favorite sermon, or one of my other two favorite sermons, is a sermon from 1997 by Tim Keller on the Ascension. So from the Book of Acts, uh, he teaches. So just a caveat, you can go find it on YouTube. I listened to it like 100 times this week again. Um, and a little bit of this is pilfered from that. So just a heads up, if you go listen to that and you're like, John said that on Sunday, I'm like, yeah, I know, that's why I told you at the beginning. All right, but I want to start with the quote from Tim Keller here. Um, he says, from that sermon, he says, just as uh, it is ridiculous to build a beautiful house if nobody lives in it, and it's just as ridiculous as it is ridiculous and of no use preparing this incredible, beautiful meal if nobody ever eats it, and just as it is silly to build a wonderful bomb to blast through a mountain so that you can build a road if you build it without a detonator, so the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are of no use without the ascension. For the ascension is the detonator for everything else that Jesus did. That's how he starts his sermon. I thought that was good enough to just read to you instead of trying to paraphrase it and make you think I made it up. But basically what he's saying is the, re the ascension takes everything that Jesus did and it like blows it up and sends it out into the world, right? You know, that's the idea. So we're going to read the story of the ascension. Um, oh, wait, sorry. There was, there was another part of that. The ascension is that which takes... Wait, did I already read that? No. That which takes what Jesus Christ was and did on earth and releases it into the universe uh, and into your lives with all of its healing power. So we're going to read this story. We're going to read the end of the book of Luke. I'm pretty excited. I should probably turn my Bible to Luke, huh? Um, we're going to read the end of Luke um, and talk about this wonderful day. All right, here we go. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So I'm not going to get into this a ton uh, because of, we already talked about this a bunch in the last few weeks. But if you remember the story, if you were here or listened to the podcast, the story of the road to Emmaus right after the resurrection on Sunday, two of Jesus's disciples were walking to a town seven miles away from Jerusalem called Emmaus, a Cleopas, and we said probably his wife, and they were walking, and uh, Jesus comes up next to them, and they're kept from recognizing Jesus. And on the walk, they have this big, long conversation where Jesus teaches them. Says, he goes through the whole Old Testament and explains how all this stuff is about him and how he is supposed to suffer and die. And um, 
I said, I'm really jealous. I wish I could have recorded that because that would make sermon prep a lot easier if I had all those kind of cheat sheets, right? Um, so he goes through this. So it's really interesting, though. Do you see how important this is to the Lord? He rises from the dead, and then what does he do? He, let me keep teaching you. Remember, like, Thursday night, I was teaching you guys from the Bible and stuff. I, I got to take a little break here. Die on Friday, rise on Sunday, Sunday afternoon. All right, we're back to it. I, on Thursday afternoon, I was at this part of Ezekiel. All right, this is kind of what, by the way, you know, that I've, I told you that it's my favorite story of all time, the John Calvin thing, where he gets fired in Geneva. And uh, because he refused to serve communion to a bunch of horrible people who shouldn't take communion. And I mean, whether you refuse it or not, it's a whole thing. But anyway, he gets fired by the city council, like the, the civil government fires him as the pastor of the town. So he goes to Strasbourg for a few years and Geneva falls apart without him. So they beg him to come back. And he's like, I don't want to go back. I'm actually happy now for the first time in my life. But he feels like the Lord's telling him to go back. So he goes back and he gets in the pulpit after three and a half or four years. And he stands up and he goes, last time we were in Isaiah 43, and today we'll be in Isaiah 44. And he just picked up where he left off four years ago. I feel like that's what Jesus does. This is how important the scriptures are to him. Like, he's thinking, okay, I have got to teach these guys the Bible. And if the Bible and these Old Testament stories and the gospel story was that important to them, how much more important is it to us? All right, but here's the problem. How many of you, anybody doing a reading plan this year? Yeah, okay, just one. Reading plans? Come on. Reading plans are pretty... Okay, I'm not even doing one. I'm just reading all over like I always do, but I'll probably get through the Bible this year-ish. Pretty close. Um, but anyway, if you're doing a reading plan, you know it's the joke. Where do we all quit our reading plans? Leviticus, right? Yeah, because it's like the priest's barbecue manual, right? Like how to butcher these things and how to, you know, how to do this whole thing, right? We all get lost. Isn't the... Some parts of the Bible are pretty hard to understand. Not hard to understand, but hard to like care about, too. Isn't that true? You get through Leviticus. I mean, I always joke with you guys, you know, hey, I'm going to teach Leviticus next. But I mean, it's actually a great book if you read into it. But <laughs> my old pastor did it at our old church, and it was fantastic. But anyway, um, here's why. Look at this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is very important. Naturally, in our fallen state, our minds are closed to the things of God. Uh, Romans 1 says that our hearts have been darkened. Right, to the truths that we find in the gospel story and scripture. Um, so how do we understand scripture? How can people understand scripture? Right? They have to have Jesus open up their minds. Reading the Bible takes, and studying the Bible and really understanding it, takes discipline. Right? Like I put a lot of time into sermon prep and studying a passage so that I can get up and teach it to you in you know, 45 minutes or whatever, but it takes me hour, you know, 20 hours of study, actually probably more than that, I don't know. It used to take me 30 or 40 when I was younger. Uh, it takes a lot of this discipline, right? There is a process, but there's more to it than that. Right? That makes it sound very just kind of wooden and uh, like scientific or whatever, but that's not how it is. Because our, um, because our hearts are fallen, because we're blind, we need to look at the scripture with new eyes that we don't have before salvation, right? We need this new heart. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks when we get into Ezekiel, but... Um, this is how you get past, I understand the Bible, to like, I feel what it says. And I think that's a lot of what's going on here. Is Jesus is helping these disciples. He's opening their minds to what's going on in the scriptures so that they can feel in their souls what the scripture says. And then verse 46, and he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. 
and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So again, he tells them, he's teaching them the scripture, and he says, look guys, this whole thing about me being crucified, you know, like I, I think I said this while we were doing the crucifixion, but Jesus didn't trip and fall and land on the cross, right? It was the plan the whole time. This is why he came. And so he's getting into this. We're not going to, that was the whole Emmaus sermon, road to Emmaus sermon, so we're not going to get into that. But at the end, he says then, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. All right, so the plan all along was for Jesus to die and rise again. Now that that's happened, he tells them, here's the plan now going forward. It's for you guys to take the gospel out, to proclaim the gospel. The gospel has to be said out loud. All right, you know there's a um, Francis... St. Francis, uh, who our city is named after. There's a famous quote by him that he never said, it turns out. <laughs> right? But if you Google it, it, you'll find this quote. And it's like, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? I mean, it, I get the sentiment behind it, is that our actions should show people Jesus, and we should love people. You know, we talk about this a lot. But at the same time, the gospel has to be explained. Right? The gospel has to be spoken out loud. Um, and so what does this message look like? He tells us repentance that leads to forgiveness in the name of Jesus. That's the gospel story, right? Is that people need to turn away from their sins and turn to the Savior. And the audience for this message is who? The nations. Now, you've got to remember how uh, insulated the Jewish people were in the first century. We've talked about this a lot in the book of Luke. They did not like outsiders. This was not a friendly town. They had a word for people that were outsiders. They made up the word Gentiles just to be like other you know, like, I'm a Giants fan, but we don't have a word for, like, not Giants fans. We should. Uh, anyway, Dodger fans, they're idiots. That's what we call them. But anyway, you get the idea. They made up a whole word just because of how much they hate these guys, right? And so what Jesus is telling them is, you got, you got to get out of The book of Acts will really play this out. you got to get out of this mindset. Because your mission now is to take what I've done here, go to the world, and tell them about it. It's beginning in Jerusalem, because they're in Jerusalem now. Which he's not saying go to Jerusalem and start over there. He's saying where you are right now, this is the start, this is the start of the mission. And how are they going to be the ones that get to tell? Because they're witnesses, right? You are witnesses of these things, verse 48. The word witness in Greek is actually we I think I've mentioned this before, but is actually the word martyr. And the word martyr doesn't mean what we think of the word martyr. The word martyr just means somebody who saw something and then testifies about it. Right, it's like the ancient word for that. But in the Christian world, it came to mean somebody who was so willing to testify about the truth of Jesus that they were willing to die for it. And that's how the word witness became the word martyr. And that's what Jesus is telling these guys. So this word doesn't really have the martyr connotation yet. But he's telling them, you guys uh, are the witnesses of these things. But if you think about it, it's an impossible task, isn't it? i got to tell the whole world about Jesus. It should be a daunting task when you think about the mission of God, the Great Commission, right? Go tell the world about me. But good news is, behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what is this promise? I'll read to you from John. This is Jesus. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Uh, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world 
gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So what Jesus says is, look, he tells us, look, guys, I am going away. But that's good news, because if I go away, that means the Holy Spirit gets to come. Now, I had a question about this a while ago, and I've never found an answer. I just want to say it out loud, because sometimes that's how it works. How come... Jesus says, I have, to, I have to go away. I must go away. Like, it's that imperative talk. Not like, I, I'm going away, and then the Holy Spirit's going to come, but I must go away so that he can come. And my question is, why can't they just both be here? And there's nothing in the Bible that says. Except that Jesus says that's how it works. We'll find out when we're dead. Right? Uh, so, but what he says is, once I go away, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to empower you. And this, um, this, Oh, wait, okay, I want to tell you real quick. Uh, here's my plan for sermons going forward, like forever. Okay, we're going to do Ezekiel. That's going to take like half of this year about. Um, we're going to do Ezekiel a lot faster than we're doing Luke, by the way. You know, three verses at a time or whatever. Um, we're going to do Ezekiel. Then my plan is I wanted to do Acts after Ezekiel, but I don't want to do Acts for four years like we did three and a half years or whatever, three years for um, Luke. So what we're going to do is we're going to break Acts into some chunks. We're going to do part of Acts, and then another book, and then part of Acts, and then another book, and we'll get it done eventually. The most important verse in the book of Acts is Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be um, my witnesses, in, and then he gives the map. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? This is what Jesus says. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, the, the church is going to have this power. And the, the root word under the Greek there for um, power is the word, the same root we get the word dynamite from. That's where Keller got that illustration from, about it blows it up into the world, right? It's this like, this awe-inspiring power is what's going to come upon the church. So this is what Jesus, before the ascension, he's given them the plan. This is what you guys are going to go do. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Bethany was a little village uh, on the Mount of Olives, right? So... Um, they're out there next to Jerusalem on the mountain, right outside the city of Jerusalem. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Just like priests in the Old Testament. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament about priests lifting up their hands. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. Acts, the book of Acts gives us um, a little more details. I don't think I have a slide for this, do I? Uh, I do have a slide, I think. Yeah, there we go. Sorry, I was in the wrong place. Um, let me read this to you. Acts 1. So, you know, Luke and Acts are kind of like part one and part two. It's like the fellowship and then the two towers, you know? I told you I was going to talk about Lord of the Rings a lot because I just finished reading it again. Um, so there's actually a little bit of overlap in these books. Acts kind of goes back and starts a little. In Acts it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so I think this probably was a really funny scene. A really, like, if you don't care about what's actually going on, if you were just, like, standing on the side watching this, this is really odd. So this guy goes out with his disciples. And he lifts them up and he blesses them. 
he stands up and, you know, there's a couple of hundred people, I think, we find out later. Like, it's a pretty good group of people here, right? And he blesses his disciples. And uh, then he starts floating. David Copperfield style. You know that guy from the 90s? Is he still alive, I wonder? Anyway, uh, <laughs> guy that made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Who remembers that? Um, anyway, so, this, you know, he starts, like, just floating up into the air, just like all those paintings from the Middle Ages, you know. Uh, and it's kind of a, a foggy day, like in San Francisco, and he like disappears into the fog. And Peter's like, "Where did he go?" They're all looking up. Andrew's standing there. And they see a break in the clouds. I think they see, oh, that's just a bird, you know. And then at some point, they're all looking up, right? And then at some point, somebody looks down. Oh, there's like two guys standing over there that weren't there a minute ago. And the guys are glowing white, and they say. Uh, why are you guys looking up into the sky? And Peter's like, well, it's kind of obvious. Jesus just flew up there, right? Superman style. Um, and we're waiting for him to come back. Is kind of the implication. They're waiting for him to come back. You know, how high is he going to, what is he doing? I mean, we've seen him walk on water and, you know, calm the storm. Is he doing another one of these kind of miracles? Like, did they know he was going into heaven? And then the angel's explaining to him, no, dummies. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It's the New John version. No dummies. Okay, he is coming back. That's what they say. Okay, he's coming, but like in a while. It's, it's going to be a while. And so, what do they do? This is the end of the book of Luke, right? And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. So I think they get it. Oh, he's gone. Like, for good, God. But what do they do? They, they, it says specifically, and they worshipped him. To us, that doesn't sound like a big idea. You know why? Because we have a million hymns and songs that's like, I worship Jesus, blah, 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 worship Jesus, something else, I worship Jesus, you know. So for us, the idea of worship and Jesus is not that big of a deal. But um, uh, N.T. Wright, remember I talked about that N.T. Wright book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God. He, he, there's a whole section of that book where he gets all academic and into a whole thing about how Jewish people would never worship some guy that they knew. It would never happen. Um, and the only way that it would happen is if he came back from the dead. And for a Jewish person to worship some guy that they knew is just something, anything besides God is absolutely blasphemous. It's a big deal. It's like they're, you know, I mean, can you imagine if, if you all of a sudden we're like, man, you know who's really got the world figured out is the Taliban. And you went to church and you were like, I think I'm going to join the Taliban, you guys. We'd all be like, what are you, nuts? That's the same level of a 180 that somebody worshiping some guy that they knew in the Jewish world would have taken. It's a big deal to, to completely change the way that you think. And this is what they're doing, though. And Luke ends it, ends the book of Luke, with this kind of stuff, I mean, with this sentence on purpose, because the whole process in the book of Luke, the whole process of discipleship and Jesus's ministry, do the disciples understand what Jesus is doing at all? Not really, <laughs> right? And which is great because the disciples told Luke this whole story before he wrote it down. This is these guys telling him, I didn't get it at all, right? I thought I got it. And then I was chopping off that guy's ear of Peter talking and you know, like James and John, and I was asking Jesus to hit these guys with lightning, uh, call down lightning from heaven, and then he started calling us the sons of thunder as a joke, right? Like, 
These guys really didn't get it. And now we're told specifically, they don't just worship, they're worshiping Jesus. The man they spent four years with, the man they saw executed, they finally understand who he is. And why is it they understand who he is? What did we just read? Because he opened up their mind to understand the scriptures. Right? There's a whole new level of sanctification that's happening here with these disciples. And that's how the story of Luke ends. They go back to the temple, because that's still kind of the center of worship for now. And they're sitting there and they're worshiping Jesus. And then um, it's kind of like, it's a little hard to end the story here. Because what happens is, you know, it's like at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Okay, here's what happens, right? So Frodo and the little fat hobbits, right? They get in that boat and they're sailing away. And then uh, the orcs took those other two little hobbits and they're on the run and everybody's chasing them. And we think Gandalf's dead and everybody goes their separate ways. And then the book ends. And you're like, what's going to happen to these hobbits? What's going to happen to Aragorn? Is he going to become the king? Newsflash, he does become the king, right? Anyway, it's kind of like that. And that's Luke. Luke picks up the story right where this one and it says, what happens after they go to Jerusalem and they're worshiping in the temple? And by the way, remember our church is called the porch because the place where they went and worshiped in the temple was Solomon's porch. Right? That's what we named, well, one of the reasons we named it the porch. Um, so we're eventually going to get to the rest of the story. You're like, did you just teach for three and a half years and then tell me that's just the three years and tell me that's just the half of the story? Yeah, that's how we did it. All right. So, <laughs> all right, let's do this here. I want to give you four ideas about the ascension. Four things we can think about that kind of explain what's going on with the ascension. The first one is this. Uh, the, ascent, the ascension, what it means is that Jesus is our king. He's the king of the universe. When we think of the ascension, the word ascend, right, it kind of has like a weird double meaning here. I think most of us think of the ascension as like he ascended, like he Superman did that thing where he puts his fist in the ground and the ground shakes a little, you know, from the movies. Am I the only one that saw that in the movies? And then he goes, right, and he takes off. Uh, and we think, okay, Jesus went up. That's how the ascension works. He ascended. Uh, that's true, but he didn't just travel up like an astronaut. He didn't just hit the atmosphere and then go past the atmosphere into a low orbit. And then he swung around the earth and then the moon and then he swung around the moon and he's just still out there going somewhere 2,000 years like wait that thing that just hit Pluto was 77 right so maybe he hits the next solar system at some point that's not what Jesus did that's not what we mean by the ascension um, it says that he went from this world to heaven not the heavens which in scriptural terms means like space and the sky and everything but into heaven which is like the realm of God it's where God is and lives with you know, the fall, uh, with the saints who have died. No, we don't have to get into that now. But that's where Jesus took off. So somewhere beyond those clouds, he went full Elijah and took off and went into heaven. And so what do we mean by ascension then? Okay, somewhere, I don't know if you guys heard, but the Queen of England died. You might have heard about that. It was on the news, I think. Did I just, are you guys all sad now? You didn't know. Um, <laughs> she was pretty old. It was okay. Uh, so somewhere in England... Uh, Keller does this in his sermon. He says, somewhere in England, there's like a throne. I think there is a throne somewhere, right? And uh, does anybody know where it is? Is it in Buckingham Palace or is it in the chapel or something? Where is it? It's in the palace? There's like a room with a throne? Okay. Now, you guys, okay, yeah, yeah. You guys know the guy that broke into the Buckingham Palace? Remember that guy? Didn't he sit on the throne? Like, he went up, right? I know from the crown he sat on the throne. I wonder if that happened in real life. 
But I remember he, was, he stole some wine and he was drinking on the throne, right? So he went up the steps, he ascended the throne of England, but nobody was like, that guy's the king. They're just like, that's that drunk guy that broke into Buckingham Palace and mostly got away with it, by the way. Like, did he like, not do any time, right? <laughs> yeah, the whole story is nuts. Anyway, um, so he went up onto the throne, and that doesn't make, you know, there, when you talk about ascending the throne, it, it, there's a meaning to it. What it means is you're taking the throne as king, right? You're becoming the ruler. Right? It's not just about Jesus going, the ascension is not just him going up, but it's him going up to sit on his throne. Um, you guys know Psalm, I should have written it down or looked it up, Psalm 110, 1. Uh, was it the Lord says to my Lord, behold, I, was it make your enemies a footstool or something? You know, basically God and Jesus are talking. He's like, hey, wait here until I finish off your enemies. Sit on your throne until I finish the enemies. That's the most quoted verse in the New Testament or alluded to verse in the New Testament. And it's like not even close. When the, the disciples writing scripture, these apostles, when what they're thinking about when they think about Jesus is they don't think about Jesus as little Jesus, meek and mild, sitting in the manger getting his diaper changed. They think about Jesus on the throne, right? Like I'll read to you from Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 1, 3, and then 8 and 9. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You've probably heard that, right? And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, so after the death and resurrection and all that, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then jump down a little. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness, anointing like the anointing of the king, uh, of gladness beyond your companions. He goes on to compare Jesus to angels and all this stuff. But um, the idea is, when we think about Jesus, we... What he did in Luke, walking around healing people, it's cool. And it's very important because he lived the life we never lived, died the death we couldn't so that he could switch places with us, you know, the whole gospel story. But I think we need to maybe reorient our framework the way the disciples clearly have. When they think Jesus, they don't think Jesus that they knew on earth. They think Jesus sitting on the throne of God in heaven. And what does that mean for us? pretty important, isn't it? Because Jesus is not the guy that you go to and say, do you remember the guy who asked Jesus if you can heal my boy? And Jesus is like, if I can, he kind of laughs and then he heals him. You know, that's kind of like how we approach you. Hey, you know, well, if you want to, you know, if it's your will, I mean, I guess that's okay to say, but, you know, we're boldly coming before the God, you know, who's sitting on the throne. It's like a pretty important aspect of who Jesus is. That's the first idea from the ascension. That's where Jesus went. That's what he's doing. The second idea, the ascension means that he relates to his people in a more powerful way. Have you ever thought about this? Boy, I wish Jesus was here. Just once can I see his face and ask him a question? Why you got to hurt all my quarterbacks? That's the question. <laughs> That's what I would ask him today anyway. Why you got a thing for the Niners, man? <laughs> Turn the Niners into Job and everything? Uh, this podcast is not going to make sense in like five years, by the way. Uh, but today, that makes a lot of sense. No, right? If you, you ever think about, oh, if only I had a chance to sit with Jesus like the disciples did. 
All right, here's the thing. Mary Magdalene, you know about her? She sees Jesus at the tomb, and she grabs onto him. And this is, uh, okay, in your, if you're reading along in the thing, it's the wrong verse in there. I put, uh, yeah, I put the wrong verse in here, too. Okay, uh, it's actually John 20, 17, not 21. I'll read this to you. This is what Jesus says to her. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary grabs Jesus. You know, first she thinks he's the gardener. He's like, hey, what did you do with his body, man? What the heck? And Jesus is like, um, hey, Mary? She rubs her eyes. Whoa, you know, big giant bugs bunny eyes. You know, it's Jesus. She runs over and she bear hugs him. And she's grabbing him really hard. And he's like, all right, calm down. <laughs> and what he tells her is, don't touch me. And there's a lot of really weird things that Christians have written over the years about why she shouldn't touch Jesus. All very superstitious and magical. And his body was this or that, or, you know, whatever. Um, here's the problem with all of that stuff is other people totally touched Jesus. He goes to Thomas, hey, look at my hands. You look, touch it, put your finger. That's what he says. He doesn't tell Thomas, don't touch me. I'm a weird magical being now. And you can't touch me. And if you do, you'll melt or something. Like the guys from Indiana Jones, right? It's just, yeah, go ahead and touch me. So what, what was going on with Mary? What was happening there? Well, Mary wasn't just hugging Jesus. She was not letting him go. She didn't want him to leave. Imagine how much Mary loved Jesus. He had, he had healed her from um, demonic oppression, right? She owes him everything. She loves this guy. This is her master, her lord, her friend, and he gets brutally murdered. And imagine just the gut feeling that that must have been on Friday and Saturday. And then to get up on Sunday morning and see him alive? What? All right, so I'm watching the show Madam Secretary. Don't spoil it. I, don't, I haven't watched the end yet. Uh, you guys know the show? You guys, I'm running out of shows to watch. If I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I've seen all the shows. Anyway, so I'm watching the show. And in that show, there's a spy who gets killed. And, I mean, uh... Yeah, there's a spy who gets killed. But later, it turns out that the Russians didn't actually kill him. They just threw him in a gulag and they tortured him a bunch. And the U.S. gets him free. And his sister uh, reunites with him. She's grieved. You know, she thought he's dead. She's grieved. They had a funeral. She thought he had lost him. And when she sees him alive, she runs across the, I forget where it happened, airport tarmac or whatever, grabs him and says, I'll never let you go again. Like one of those kind of hugs. Right? That's Mary here. That's the kind of like, I thought, I really thought you were dead. And she's hugging him and she's grabbing him. But Jesus breaks in and says, Mary, you don't get it. See, you're afraid to let me go. You're afraid to lose me again. I get it. But if I ascend, you will never lose me again. While I'm here, this is the thing. While Jesus, he talks about this in John, right? While he's here, he says, I'm only in one place at one time. I can only have one conversation at a time. But if I ascend, all of that will change. No matter where you go, no matter what happens to you, I will be there. They can put you into the, the darkest dungeon uh, all by yourself, except that I'll be right there with you. Right? There's a time, um, you know, we read about that, I'm going to that a little bit with Paul in the book of Acts, where he's like really down in the dark, and Jesus shows up in a vision. And should, you know, no matter where you are, they can send you into exile, whatever it is, I'll be there. If I ascend, my power won't be limited to a couple of people in the area surrounding me in Galilee, but my power will be out into the world. 
for all of my people. It'll explode into the world. Keller said this in that sermon that I love so much. Not only does the ascension actually do the opposite of what the apostles thought. Right, so they thought if Jesus leaves, we won't have him anymore. So not only will it do the opposite of what they thought, the ascension is not the absence of Christ. It's the increased and heightened presence of Christ. The ascension is not the loss of his leadership, intimacy, and protection, but the infinite magnification of it. I love that. Right, when the, with the Holy Spirit here, we have more Jesus than the disciples had walking around with him in Galilee. I think that's pretty cool. When I first became a believer, I grew up, you guys kind of know my story, Matthew. I grew up in church and I thought it was all baloney. And then sometime basically at the end of high school, um, I became an actual believer. You know, the Lord grabbed a hold of me. And one of the first things that happened after I was a believer, uh, I went to one of those churches that nobody was like, hey, you should start reading your Bible. I don't know. I never read the Bible before, really. Um, so I picked up this book by a guy named John Pollock. And uh, this book is called The Master. And what it is, it's kind of like just a biography he wrote of Jesus through the eyes of John in the book of John. And uh, I still have my copy somewhere. But anyway, I, I found that this was at the end of the book. And this really had an impact on me. This is John at the end of, like after Pentecost. He goes into the book of Acts a little bit. It says, above all else, oh wait, I had it up here. Above all else, John had an overwhelming, exquisite feeling that Jesus was in the room. Right, not merely in the room, but right within him. Jesus was back as he had promised. I will not leave you as orphans. He said, I will come to you. We will come, uh, we will come to you and make our home in you. And I remember being like 17 or 18 or whatever, and that just really hit me. It was the first time I ever understood what the, you know, what the Holy Spirit, what he does. Right? That I loved that image of John sitting in the room at Pentecost and being overwhelmed by the Spirit and going, oh, Jesus is back. The way he said that he would be. So that transforms our relationship with the guy that we met in the book of Luke, doesn't it? We don't walk the shores of Galilee. We don't get to see him walk on water. But we get to see him work all the same. And we actually get to know him better than the disciples did in the book of Luke. I think that's cool. All right, here's our third idea. The ascension means that Jesus speaks through his people. Okay, this is pretty important. Jesus was a pretty good teacher. You know how I know? Because then people go up to him in the Bible and they're like, hey, good teacher. That's what they call him. So it's pretty obvious that he was a good, good teacher. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says in Matthew, and the people, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing, they marveled because he spoke with one who actually had some authority. Right? These other rabbis and stuff were all, you know, the Torah says this, and my interpretation, Jesus says, you heard it said, but I say to you, and people were blown away. Thousands of people showed up to hear him teach. He's portrayed in the book of Luke and in the Gospels as like the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets and their teaching ministry. Isn't it a major bummer that he's gone now? Wouldn't it be great if we could have Jesus teach a seminary class or like a school of ministry thing? Like, hey guys, the Bible study this week, you should go. Jesus is teaching it. Right? That sounds great, doesn't it? Well, yeah, isn't it a major bummer that that's not how it works? The Bible's answer to that is no, it's not a bummer. Because he speaks through his people. At the beginning of the book of Acts, it starts out the same way, very similar to how the book of Luke starts. But he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, remember that same guy? He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus would, what began to do and teach. That's pretty important. Not 
I started with everything that Jesus taught, and now I want to tell you about everything that the apostles are teaching. What Luke says is, I started with what he began to do and teach. The implication being, he's still doing things, and he's still teaching. Um, that same idea gets picked up in Ephesians. Um, I'll read this to you real quick. Uh, let's see. Ephesians 4. But it is, uh, that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Okay, so this is one of those really weird Greek things that translators always change a little bit because they're afraid to put what it actually says. Because it's very confusing if you put what it actually says. Because what it really says in verse 21, every translation, every English translation, not that they get this wrong, but they soften it. It says, assuming that you heard about him. That's not what it really says in the Greek. What it really says in the Greek is more something like, assuming um, that you have heard from him. You've heard him. What Paul is saying is has a lot of weight to it. He says, do you remember that time that I came to Ephesus and there was the riot, it was the whole thing, and I taught you guys about Jesus and I planted this church? That was Jesus talking to you. That's pretty important. Like, that's a pretty gutsy thing to say, that when I talk, Jesus talks. Paul picks that up later in Ephesians. He says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Right? And it goes on, you know. But the problem is, Jesus never left Israel. I guess he was in Egypt when he was a baby. But, like, in his adult ministry, he never left the nation of Israel. He didn't go to Ephesus. But Paul says he did. He came and he preached to you. Right? How does that work? Well, in Acts 1, again, jumping back to Acts 1, the disciples asked Jesus, the apostles, right before the ascension, hey, Jesus, are you about to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus' answer is, no. Not like, you know, you're asking, am I about to go? I just told you guys you need to go take the gospel of the world. And the disciples ask, are you going to do it? And he says, no. And that's where the context for that Acts 1-8 verse happens. No, you're going to do it. I'm not going to go tell everybody about the gospel. You're going to tell them. This is very weighty, right? This is, this is why uh, a little bit later in Acts, when Saul, who becomes Paul, is on the road to Tarsus, and Jesus drop kicks him off the horse. And what does he do? He bends over, he says right in his face with the bright light, you know, like the cop that shine the flashlight in your eyes. Did he get you like, did they do that to you when you're driving back? He shined a light? Yeah. He shines a light in Paul's eyes, or Saul's eyes. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't killing Jesus. He was killing Jesus' church. But Jesus so identifies with his people and the message of the gospel that are preached through his people that what the Bible tells us is that when we teach the gospel and when we proclaim the word of God, people don't hear us, they hear Jesus. Because he's ascended and because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's pretty cool. All right, here's the last one. The end of the book of Luke. Jesus' ascension isn't permanent. Let's go down here. All right, we read in Acts 1.11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, as the angels talking, uh, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Right now, so when Jesus, the incarnation, you know the incarnation, we talked about that at the beginning of the book. God becomes a man. And now he's the God-man. He has both of these natures fully. We're not getting into all that again. But 
Uh, Jesus really became a man. The ascension, wasn't Jesus sort of weirdly shedding off his humanity and leaving it behind and going back to being only God? Jesus will always be the God-man from here on out. He will always be a human being. Think about that for a second. Jesus has a real body somewhere right now, like a, you can hit it with the other hand and make a noise body. Right? Jesus is sitting somewhere right now in a chair or in a couch or probably a Barca lounger. He's not married, and if a wife would tell him he can't buy a big Barca lounger and put it in our living room. Uh, <laughs> right? That's what I want, one of those big chairs to watch the Niners lose. Why you got to bring that up? What was I saying? Something about Jesus. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, <laughs> right now, Jesus is somewhere, maybe standing up, maybe he's playing ping pong, maybe he's talking to someone, maybe he's praying for our church. He's telling the Father not to destroy us because we belong to him. This is what Jesus is doing right now. He's doing something. And at some point, Jesus is going to get up out of that bark lounger, the throne of God. He's going to, ooh, that actually cracked. He's going to crack his neck, do one of these. Oh, I'm very old, you guys. I got a lot of crack and parts of uh, joints that crack. And he's going to roll his neck, and he's going to say, all right, Father, it's time to go. Time to head back. And he's going to get on his robe, right, that's already covered in blood. You read about this in Revelation, right? And he's going to come back the same way that he went up. Instead of going up into the clouds, he's going to come down from the clouds in his actual resurrected body. In Revelation 19, we read about that second advent. Right? Jesus comes back on a white horse with his eyes on fire like a warrior king. You know, they're using that imagery, right? Uh, ready for battle. That's the image that's used on the white horse. And the victory of Jesus and his defeat of the enemy means two things, really. First is that Jesus is going to judge his enemies. Revelation 19 uses this image of him. It says, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty God. That is a heavy way to say that Jesus is going to judge his enemies. That he's going to judge the people who have stayed in rebellion against him, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, against the Trinity. People who have refused his salvation. It's a terrifying image when you look at the Gospels in the New Testament. For somebody to look at the Gospels in the New Testament and say, nah, that's not for me. For somebody to hear this story and say, I'd rather just keep doing what it is that I want to do with my life. It says that Jesus is coming back in his physical resurrected body in this reverse ascension. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to judge his enemies. But the second thing is, for his people, it's a whole different story. Right? It's not like this for all of us. The weird thing about the image in Revelation 19 is he comes back. And it says, before the battle even starts, right, before, you know, it's using this battle imagery, before the battle starts, Jesus is wearing what? It says a robe dipped in blood, covered in blood. He comes back, and he's all bloody. Um, at the beginning of the battle, before any of it gets started, if I was going into surgery, you ever been wheeled into surgery? I have. They wheel you into surgery, and... The surgeon always comes in and says something before the anesthesia guy puts you under, and he goes, all right, here's what we're gonna do, this is how long it's gonna take. I'm gonna go wash up and I'll be right back. And he's usually like pretty clean. If he came in covered in blood and guts and gore, I would be like, um, why are you already all bloody, man? 
uh, we haven't even started the surgery yet. That's kind of Jesus in this battle. He comes back, battle hasn't even started. Somebody should ask, whose blood is that? Before the battle starts. And the answer when you read the New Testament is whose blood is it? It's his blood. Right? This is how we're saved, is by his blood. The fact that he's bloody before the battle starts is how his people can look and go, that's how I know he's victorious. Right? So for those of us who look at the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke especially, and we say, yeah, that's my Savior, that's my King. That's the guy that died and rose for me. I'm one of his people. For, that, for those people, for us, the second coming, the reverse ascension, the second advent, whatever you want to call it, is going to be the greatest day of all time. This Jesus that we just spent three years reading about in the book of Luke, who lives in us now, in our church, and in us individually, through his Holy Spirit, this Jesus is going to come back with his resurrected body to this very world. And he's going to gather up his people, and he's going to begin the restoration of all things. Right? That all creation, Romans tells us, is like waiting for eagerly for this moment when Jesus is coming back. And that upside-down kingdom, we've talked a lot about in the book of Luke, the upside-down kingdom is going to reach its ultimate fulfillment. And so what we've seen in the book of Luke, in a little small taste, right, we're going to see in its ultimate fulfillment in the next world, right, in the better version of this world. And so Jesus, he healed people in the book of Luke, didn't he? In eternity, he won't have to because there won't be that same kind of brokenness and sickness. He brought people back from the dead in the book of Luke. You won't have to do that because death will be no more, right? Oh, death, where is your sting? Right? He taught people in the book of Luke, and they didn't get it at all. In the new heaven and new earth, he'll teach, and we're totally going to get it because we'll learn all about his glory and understand who he is and his majesty, but we'll actually be able to take it in because our broken minds will be fixed. In the Gospel of Luke, right, Jesus spoke into the brokenness of society, and he pulled in those people that were on the margins. But in that new realm, right, in the new heaven and new earth, in eternity, we won't have to do that because we won't have the fallenness and these sinful divisions. Right? Jesus called people to repentance in the book of Luke. But again, in the new world, he won't have to because we will be perfectly glorified, and the sin that plagues us now will be completely shut off. But until that day, that we look forward to the backwards ascension, right? What do we do? How do we live? We live as his people here on earth, his ambassadors in a foreign land, right? We're his people. We're his mouthpiece. We speak for him. And when we speak the gospel, when I preach the gospel from this pulpit, when you share the gospel with your friends and neighbors and loved ones, right? People don't hear you. They hear Jesus. We're his hands and feet. We love people. We're his representatives on earth, light in the darkness. And because he's done all of this for us, we live faithfully and we try to follow him. And when we fail, what do we do? Turn around and run to him with confidence that our standing isn't based on our behavior, but on his love and sacrifice. Right? So that's the book of Luke. Pretty good, right? Three years later. All right, let's pray.